are watching School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. We are here tonight to do kind of part two of our book study. We definitely want to hear about uh, anybody else who's been reading the book or is interested in the book, even if you haven't read it, um, feel free to join in in the discussion and let us know what you think about kind of book studies through podcasts and if, if that's a good thing or a bad thing or what, but um, book is certainly um, worth picking up. But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk about how you can participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Um, you can participate if you're watching us live by signing into your YouTube account, and your comments will go right alongside the video. Even if you're watching at somewhat of a delay or later on um, when we're not broadcasting live anymore, you can still comment right alongside the YouTube video if you're watching. If you're listening to audio only, you can comment on either of the Facebook pages, School Psych Podcast page, or School Psych Your School Psychology. You can message us inbox or write along the uh, feeds of either of those pages. You can comment under the post for this um, episode. And also, if you're still hanging in there on Twitter, you can comment on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And we are at Podcast Psyched on Twitter. We'll be looking for notifications and looking forward to this conversation with you. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce himself. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, my name is Eric, and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And uh, our wonderful guest this evening is, uh, are you all? Um, this is, we're looking for audience participation. And we have our book, Hacking Deficit Thinking by Drs. Byron McClure and Kelsey Reed. And we want to just continue the discussion that we started a few months back. And uh, as Rachel asked, I, I think that's a great question. Our book talks a good thing on podcasts. Should we continue with this kind of thing? There are so many good books that I think apply to the field of school psychology, either directly or indirectly, and would be great topics of discussion and would help build our skills. So um, my personal opinion is I think they'd be great, um, but it'd be great to hear what, what other people think as well. Um, tonight's discussion, we began the first portion of the book uh, a couple weeks ago uh, or a couple months ago, and now we're on uh, section two, which is the reframe, which is uh, chapters four through six, I believe. And um, I don't know, how do we want to start? What uh, What are some good thoughts here? What do you all think about book talks for podcasts? I wanted to, before we got into it, um, just share a quick, I was in a, an IEP meeting and um, it wasn't, an, it was just an informal meeting, but there was a parent who um, worked in a nearby school system. Um, I'm not sure what her role was there, but she mentioned deficit thinking and, and, and doing that. I was like, ah, yeah. And then she said, like, I just went to this great training and it was all about, you know, and she was like, it's, I was like, oh, I know exactly. So yeah, she went to something that um, Kelsey put on about hacking deficit thinking. And she was just, you know, talking about how great it was and what a wonderful training. So I just was like, yay, I know her. I feel like I know a celebrity. So that's, that was kind of cool. But yeah, just before we got into that, Rebecca, I think you had something you wanted to chime in there and I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was uh, just going to comment on the idea of having book talks. I think that, you know, as a field, there are so many informal kinds of um, mentions of different books, different articles, things that we're reading in, on, in all of our social media. And those have been such a source of inspiration for us. Certainly, we get a lot of guests from those conversations online. Um, but for me, for, you know, just learning about what's sort of on topic in the field. And so I, I like the idea of having book talks, which give us an opportunity to take a little bit of a deeper dive than maybe just one um, article or like one, you know, specific um, post by someone that maybe doesn't have quite as much um, depth for a conversation. So I don't know. I hope that people like the idea and participate. I think people likely, most of our audience is after the fact. Our live audience is pretty small, even though we think it's a really cool component of our podcast because the conversations that we have live really do add to the larger um, topic and conversation. But maybe um, the book talk can be more asynchronous. And so I really want to encourage anybody who's tuning in, who's a 
um, subscriber of the podcast and who tunes in regularly to uh, think about picking up the book and, and commenting, even if it's like whatever, a year from now or months from now, because, you know, we can have our, our book study over time and it doesn't, it doesn't take away from it. Good points. I like it. Um, looking at our chapter, so the, the fourth chapter, and I know I think last time we jumped around a little bit and, and they're all kind of muddled together in my head and it's been a little while since I read it, but I was refreshing my memory. Uh, but chapter four, I feel like is the CBT chapter. So everything was was tied back. I saw the, the CBT triangle. I was like, yes, we, we love our triangles. Um, and so it, it made just a lot of sense to me and was kind of kind of CBTing in perspective of everything. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I feel like I'm not the most, the, the best at counseling. That's my weak point. I, I think that assessment and um, consultation and behavior stuff is more of my strength. Um, but as far as what I do do counseling, CBT is my go-to, I think, because I've had the most training there and I just have the, the highest comfort level there. So that whole chapter made made perfect sense to me. I don't know how you all felt. Yes, I, I love um, CBT and counseling. And, and so that's probably more in my wheelhouse than assessment. Um, but I've been thinking a lot lately um, as I have been thinking about resilience and just how can we apply some CBT skills, sort of tier one um, for and and with along with SEL for kids and and I've been thinking about that because um, our kids are struggling as we know you know you know we have this youth mental health crisis people are very concerned about. Um, learning loss post COVID and um, and delays that we're noticing in in social functioning sometimes social emotional functioning and we can see that our kids need these skills and whether you call them social emotional skills or um, life skills or you know there's lots of ways to kind of name them but to me they all really come down to. Um, the same ideas that we talk about when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy or um, CBT skills, the kinds of skills you would get one-on-one -on -one or in small groups with a school psychologist or a, a counselor or a, a psychologist. And so I like the way that chapter talks about the need for thinking through that lens. And um, um, they have the... The, this image of the deficit square, which I'll just hold up because I don't know if it's mirror image and there it is. <laughs> so the deficit square is on the, across the top in both directions are teacher distortions. Um, on the right side are teacher expectations. On the bottom are teacher behaviors. And on the left side are student outcomes. So you can see that um, the double arrow shows us that each area, each side impacts each other. And it's sort of like, it, to me, it's the reason why we need to help people see that distorted ways of thinking, including deficit ways of thinking, can really limit our ability to support our kids. And here, of course, is the CBT triangle. I don't know if you can see that for those of you who are watching, but, you know, it's the triangle with thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all connected. And, and so a lot of times when I'm working with kids, I, I draw that for them. And, you know, it, depending on how old they are, if they're really young, I draw with cartoons and I usually do um, like a person in the middle, <laughs> a thought bubble for the top corner, a um, hand for actions that represents behaviors or actions and a heart that represents um, feelings. And I show them how the thought bubble, the hand and the heart are all connected. And using their language, filling in each of those empty spaces, helping them see that sometimes it feels as though it's the problem that is creating our struggle or our suffering. 
But when we look at all corners of that CBT triangle, we see that it's often, you know, the problem is is framed within our thoughts and can be reframed or reconceptualized or, um, you know, rethought. And um, it's and then the problem is then supported by what we do with the problem, our actions, and and then our feelings arise from those two things too. So I just think it's really helpful. Um, idea in general. And I like the way Byron and Kelsey uh, talk about the, talk about it in this chapter. Yeah. I, I, um, I like the way they use that to sort of connect to, and I, and I think at least for us three, um, we're very connected with the CBT model, right? We've talked about this and we've had guests on and we um, sort of use that in our, our thinking. Um, and I like the way Byron and Kelsey, um, talk about that in terms of us bringing bias to the situation, right? That, that part of that deficit thinking is uh, us framing behaviors and framing students' um, actions in a particular way uh, based on, you know, our thoughts and our beliefs, um, which lead to us having um, perhaps difficulty interacting with students. And um, so I, I like that they apply that model to us as the adults, because we often think of it in terms of our clients, right? Or in terms of our students, um, but then also applying that to us as the disciplinarians often in school, or at least part of that disciplinary process and um, and the folks who have to help the kids um, solve the problems as well. So um, sort of reframing our own bias as we uh, approach those situations was uh, was really helpful for me to, to see. Yeah, it's you know uh, using uh, you know CBT on on adults like you said and 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 ourselves and and reframing that and it reminds me I remember being in graduate school we were learning different models of consultation and I can't even remember the models nor uh, do I use a particular model at least that I'm like aware of <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible but um, I do remember learning I think it was the behavioral model and the teacher stressing that this behavioral model of consultation isn't judged by the effectiveness that it has on the child on remediating like the, the problem that the teacher seems to have with the child. It's how you're able to kind of behaviorally guide um, the, the teacher to kind of re revamp how, how they're handling things. And I, I remember being a little bit surprised by that. Like, Oh, aren't we always trying to, like the goal is to help the child and focus is on the child, but that model was more like, okay, you focus on changing how the, how the teacher is is going about these things. And I, I only just kind of remember a little, <laughs> a little portion of that because clearly I was not a very studious student, but um, that just kind of brought up that memory for me of that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it can be what I like about CBT in general is that it's so transparent, you know, there's no, you know, sort of analysis behind the scenes that um, we're, we're doing as school psychologists, analyzing teacher behavior, or anything like that. But it is really, it's collaborative, and it's in partnership with teachers. And um, in that way, it's so empowering, because if, it, if a teacher can kind of have that aha moment that whatever it is that, that they've been looking at a, a student um, in, in one particular, through one particular lens, and suddenly there's a shift. It's just so empowering for the teacher and hopeful that, okay, I can, I can think about this student this way, or I can um, apply uh, these strengths that I see in this other area to this problem in this area. And um, it's just so, it's just so uh, helpful and collaborative and in such partnership, rather than kind of school psychologists as the expert in, you know, psychoanalysis or something <laughs> uh, that is telling you, you know, what your dreams mean and something. I don't know. I'm sorry. Sorry, Freud. <laughs> I, I, know, I know that's a gross generalization, but, um, but I do, I do like the transparency and the collaborative nature of um, using CVT to, to hack our deficit thinking. It reminds me of a book that we talked about a long time ago. 
um, and probably very just kind of briefly and maybe offline, but um, the coddling of the American mind. Do you remember when we were talking about that? And in that book, one of the one of the premises of the the authors put forth is that kind of everybody needs CBT. Like the whole, we're, we're just steeped in our distorted thinking and whether we are, see ourselves as sort of a hero or a victim or whatever, it's all black and white or um, just distorted. And it's just not helpful to any of us. So uh, that the, these chapters four and five remind me of that too. Just that, that notion that, it's so empowering. We can like liberate ourselves by, by using um, different lenses, more strengths-based um, ways of looking at things. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I feel like, again, like it takes, like I, we as adults need to, yeah, be aware of that, that we all have these biases. We all have distorted thoughts. Like you're saying, we all we're, we're seeing the world through our own lens, through our own perception. It's not, you know, you can't kind of escape that. And I feel like being aware of that and, you know, and, and seeing that and seeing that, you know, you don't have a perfect view of reality. Um, and that's what I see in working with kids a lot. You know, it's always like you said, like, oh, well, he did this. And, and so he made me angry or she made me sad or, you know, blaming these other people and, and, and not kind of looking about what we can control. Like, yeah, that wasn't nice that they did that to you for sure, but it's been done. And how, how can you kind of uh, make it a little bit better for yourself? What, what can you do? And so looking kind of in, internally. Right. And I think that, that, um, beginning part of what you said is really important too, that it's not that um, how you feel about your, the current perspective isn't important. Like maybe, yes, that, that, that stinks that that happened, that that person did that to you or that this is this situation and sort of validating the person's feeling, whether it be the teacher or the student validating, however the person feels is right because we can't argue with emotion. It just is. And so we do, I think, want to make room for that and then decide, okay, what can we do about it? What's in our control? And then once we can identify an action or a goal, then, you know, we can think about things differently and then we'll feel differently. So that's a really good, um, I think, way to to not, it's not that we're ignoring, you know, the person's current perspective or, you know, minimizing it, but we're also saying that we can change. There's more we can do. There's other ways we can think about it. I like also another um, graphic in, in the book, in this section, our differences, our strengths, and uh, chapter six. And so the authors have across the top all these um, differences, learning disabilities, um, such as autism, ADHD, ID, and ED, and then a list of famous recognizable people. Um, it's on page 162 if you're looking at your book. Um, with these, I, I, and I've done that. Um, with students quite often, if they, if, especially if I know that there's like a, fa a famous person that they admire um, or, you know, an adult that they admire that may have um, a learning difference that they, like they have, uh, it can be really cool for them to know like, oh, wow, Justin Timberlake has ADHD. You know, that's really cool. He's my favorite singer. Is that, you know, like, and, and so it's sometimes easier to see how differences are strengths in other people. But then when we feel different, it's so vulnerable and it feels it's harder to see it. So if we can identify um, the ways in which differences are strengths in the world, they, you know, if we just look around, um, that can also be re a really re -power a powerful reframe. Yeah, I had a little bit of mixed feelings if we're going into into chapter six with, with some of those. Uh, I mean, I was looking over the people that are listed, you know, Pablo Picasso being um, okay, having a learning disability, Bill Gates having autism. I, I 
felt like some of them on the list, I wasn't sure is that these things were confirmed and maybe that's just the, the skeptic in me, but like, I, and I didn't Google to see if like Bill Gates has ever publicly been like, I'm diagnosed on the autism spectrum or if these are just people sometimes assuming or, um, you know, diagnosing from afar type of thing. So I was a little bit like, hmm, like, I'm not sure is that I, I would, yeah, I would pick somebody from this list. I think that that's a cool thing to do, but I think I would be sure to pick somebody that is like, you know, an outward advocate of, you know, I have this and this is how it's impacted me and this is how I've persevered or this is how I've used my strengths. And I think that that has a lot of value. But some of these I was like, I don't, and I, again, admittedly, I didn't, I didn't Google, but I feel like I Googled one one name on here before. I was like, is there an actual diagnosis? And it was just people kind of speculating that he rocks a lot. And so we think that he's on the spectrum. So yeah, that just jumped out. And then the, the other chart about kind of um, common strengths. And I know that there's kind of in the book, there's kind of disclaimers about these are generalizations. These are not, you know, each child is unique and things like that. But um like some of the things that I like dyslexia, um, you know, having common strengths of strong artistic abilities. I'm not sure is that and we'll have to we'll have to get Byron and Kelsey on. I don't know where that information was pulled from, because, again, something like dyslexia is so broad. Um, you can't even define what <laughs> dyslexia is in many cases than to to generalize kind of a common strength. I'm not sure is that there's research um, on some of these things. So I was just in reading this, I was just like wondering if these are strengths and positive, but are these positive generalizations? Is this kind of um, like putting, um, you know, sometimes like stereotypes as far as like Asians are good at math and like, you know, you would think that maybe this is a positive thing, but it has harmful repercussions. And, and so I was just kind of thinking about that. I, I do know some, you know, some parents of, of children that have dyslexia and they have shared, oh, yes, so as soon as somebody finds out that my kid is dyslexic, they say, oh, well, what's what's their gift? What's what's their how are like or, or, you know, that they assume that they have some savant power and how that can be kind of hurtful um, to hear. And um, it just isn't. So, yeah, when I was reading those charts, that, that was a little bit of my reservation with that. Is, is that too much of a generalization in some of these things? I get the concept and I get like, you know, what, what we're trying to accomplish there. But, yeah. Yeah, certainly it's likely that whatever information they have on Pablo Picasso is not like actual data about how he of how he was doing in terms of learning. But um and it's against our ethics to diagnose anyone that we don't actually work with and know in real life in person. So I hear you. I think that's a fair point and um, critique of charts like this. Although it does make me think about the nature of these labels anyway, you know, because they're, they're not like, you know, a, blood test where either you have it or you don't, you know? And so it's there, they, they may be just flexible enough that if we look at, you know, hundreds of interviews of Bill Gates, for example, we might say, oh, you know, that thing that his ex-wife said about him, that sounds like stereotypic behavior or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, but, but I hear what you're saying. And I think that that's important. Um, but yeah, it's just, it also makes me think of recently on, on um, my Facebook page, I posted Russ Barkley has a ton of videos that uh, about ADHD um, lectures and um, um, webinars that he's made public. And he's, he's those, uh, I've learned so much from watching some of those. They're, they're really, he takes deep dives into, um, ADHD and how it presents and what's happening in the brain as far as he knows and, and from his research. Um, but someone said that they really prefer Ned Hallowell because Ned Hallowell, who also writes about ADHD, he's a psychiatrist as well, um, has a much more pot strengths-based view. And um, and they have this sort of argument, the two, these two scientists. And um, Russ Barkley says, 
ADHD is not a strength because look at this list of vulnerabilities that come along with it. And sure, it's sort of, you know, a spectrum. You can be somewhere on it um, where it's less impactful, but he has said that he doesn't want to like tie it up in a bow and say, here's the gift of ADHD, because then some of these kids who really need help won't, may not get it. And so he prefers to be really direct about the vulnerabilities that come with having ADHD, especially in terms of learning in school. Um, And then Ned Hallowell, he points to a lot of famous examples. In fact, one of my favorite things that Ned Hallowell says about ADHD is that America wouldn't have been founded if it weren't for people with ADHD, because when the explorers went to Great Britain, where everyone was cozy next to their fires, they knew where the water source was, they knew, you know, where to get food, and they were warm and comfy. And the explorer said, who wants to get in a ship and just like, see, (laughs) you know, and then once they even got here, and they lived, who wants to just go west and just like, let's just go, you know, it would be all the risk takers, all the people who weren't planning and thinking forward, and you know, um, all the people with ADHD. So Ned Hallowell says that uh, entrepreneurship and creativity and exploration in um, North America was largely based on, on people with ADHD. And so I, I just love that story. That's so positive. <laughs> it makes me feel like super patriotic too. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I don't know which, which who's right, if there is a right or a wrong. In, and I in- think there's probably a, a happy medium and in between. And the book does go through and say, like, we're not saying to, um, you know, totally ignore weaknesses that, you know, weaknesses need to be addressed and assisted and, and things need to be done. But it talked about, um, you know, making sure to highlight the strengths too, to not ignore the strengths, you can acknowledge the weaknesses. And I think we see this a lot in uh, classrooms, you know, we're supposed to have that ratio of three to one or four to one, you know, positive to negative interactions. And I don't know about you all, but any classroom that I've gone into, they're nowhere near that. Like that, unless a, a teacher has purposely been trained on that and they're actively like purposely trying to do that on a day-to-day basis, it's really hard ratio uh, to do. And so, but I think that that's necessary. And so that's what I'm kind of hearing, you know, Byron and Kelsey say that, you know, you need to highlight, there needs to be strengths in there really as much as you can. That's not to say you still need that, that one maybe negative interaction to provide a correction. They need feedback. They need to know that, nope, that wasn't acceptable. And then, you know, what I'm thinking about in the classroom. So I think that it's probably kind of an in-between type of, of those two perspectives, Rebecca. I don't know. Yeah, I like that. And, and I think, um, you know, Byron and Kelsey talk about humanizing your data um, and, and, you know, putting a person to these, um, things that we're looking at. Right. And, um, they give that really nice example of Mrs. Clark's classroom, um, at the end of chapter four. And, uh, I really like how, you know, they're walking you through reframe in action, I think is what they call it. Um, and giving us some clear examples of, you know, how do we humanize the data? How do we put a, a face to, uh, the things that we conceptualize, because um, I really like that the thoughts about ADHD, you know, coming from two different perspectives, because there's value in both of those perspectives. And um, and Rebecca, you and I have talked a lot about um, vulnerabilities lately, and you've kind of done some really um, valuable case conceptualization work with me um, that's really helped me see a couple of my kids um, that I'm working with in, in terms of that light and what the vulnerabilities are versus just, uh, a diagnosis and, and then looking at their resiliency factors and the strengths that they have. And, um, and that's been really helpful. So. Yeah. I think what you're saying is, um, reminiscent too of the reason why there aren't, you know, uh, three positives for every negative or whatever. It's because we're worried, right? We get really worried. And when, when kids aren't in that range of um, where we would like them to be, where we expect them to be, our worry starts to become looking for 
all the things that are going wrong, looking for the deficits. And um, if we can, if we can, while we're worried, <laughs> also say, okay, well, what are the skills that I need to to teach this child to move them a step forward? we can sort of have more productive worry rather than let's just get, let's get a, let's get a test, a series of tests, a battery of testing and a label. And, and, you know, then I can feel better. And I think, you know, teachers being the wonderful humans that they are, have a, a lot of hope and faith that somehow there's magic in the evaluation right? That like, if I can just get this kid classified with the right diagnosis or the right label, then we'll know what to do. But that's not always, we don't really need that, right? (laughs) A lot of times we can just look at the skills. What, What are the skills? Let's break those down. Let's remediate and review and repeat and give this kid the skills they need. And also, like you said, Eric, like thinking about, um, what makes them tick? What motivates them? What lights them up? Because the, those strengths can can support them in order to want to tackle things that are hard to, you know, those vulnerable places. Yeah, I love all that. That exactly. You don't need to label something to, to know like how to support it. Um, and I get that perception that a lot of people think like you need a diagnosis and now that we have it, Oh, now we, now we know what to do. It's like, you could have told you what, to, what, <laughs> what to do. Um, really in the book, it talks about too, um, these, this deficit thinking, these kind of, um, you know, negative thoughts, you know, and kind of a CBT type of thing, automatic negative thoughts are fueling academic anxiety. And I feel like that's kind of a cycle too, that like, kids and, and teachers and oh you have these perceptions and then it, it makes it causes anxiety causes uncomfortable feel like it just gunks up things and it makes it worse and it goes around and around and I was thinking about um yeah models of instruction that um that do just what you said Rebecca and, and find the missing skill and remediate and teach the skill specifically um I'm a big fan of the direct instruction approach you know Siegfried Engelman um and that approach uh, uses, well, one, it, it, like he states, and there's old videos of, of him saying this, that, you know, he fully believes that all children can learn. And if the child isn't learning, it's it's not the child, it's the instruction. You know, and, we, and I think Vander Hayden, too, has talked about the, the most predictable outcome of effective instruction is learning and skills gained. And so if you don't have learning and skills that are gained, look at the instruction. It's not effective instruction. It's not that the child has a processing weakness and like we need to, <laughs> you know, do brain balance to fix them, um, that type of thing. And, and like direct instruction model, you know, gives only 10% of the lesson is new at any time. And you're cycling through and, and reviewing and spiraling and solidifying skills. And, you know, slowly each lesson, 10%, you know, new might be introduced and then cycled through and uh, like incremental rehearsal type of um, situation. But um, yeah, I, I feel like when I'm thinking of academic models and stuff, the direct instruction approach kind of like, I just remember um, Dr. Engelman on a video saying like all children can learn. And that's the type of positive thinking that we need that, yeah, we should all have the thought that all children can learn. All children can learn. I absolutely believe that. And I think that we need to like hammer that into people just because you're are diagnosed with whatever, you can still learn. You can, you know, there might be at a, a slower rate or need more supports or need extra modeling, but they can learn. Yeah. And, and again, I think the adult anxiety and worry for students just trickles down onto these kids. And, you know, if we don't look at what's strong, it's so easy for, for a student to be overwhelmed and not want to, you know, not want to do anything differently or not um, enjoy school or the process of learning because they feel that, well, the grownups are telling me that I'm not good at this or I'm not doing this right. And I'm trying, you know, so it's just breaking that cycle of 
deficit, anxious thinking in adults that trickles down to the kids that everybody's like on this runaway train um, in the wrong direction. (laughs) Yeah. I know. And if we think about this, like uh, sort of applying this to our typical process of special education, uh, child has problem, child gets referred, child gets tested, child typically ends up getting placed in a different program. Um, you know, we, we are taught from day one in, in our school programs how to identify deficits, right? How to look for weaknesses, um, how to look for atypicality. Um, and, and of course, Byron and Kelsey note that perhaps atypicality is not so bad, right? That that may be part of the strength. Um, and, and, you know, in chapter six, as, as you both have mentioned. Um, and so I think, you know, when we're assessing something to pay attention to is what, what are the child's strengths? You know, we're looking to see how far they deviate from a norm, normative sample, you know, how, um, you know, on our standardized tests and how far they're deviating from the classroom norms or the school-based norms or district-based norms. Um, and really, you know, that, that tells us where the child is functioning perhaps in comparison to peers, but it doesn't tell us where the child's strengths are and what their gifts are. And, um, and so framing some of our assessment in terms of, you know, where the child's strengths are, I think is really important. Um, and, and I love that idea, Rebecca, of vulnerabilities and resiliency factors, protective factors and vulnerabilities. And, um, I've used that in my last two reports based on conversations that we've had recently. So um, I think that can be helpful and have gotten very positive feedback from parents and staff, um, you know, saying that really helped me note where the child's skills are, but also where their strengths are. And uh, and I can use that to support them and, and build on, on their pro- programming. I kind of lost you a little bit. I think I heard you. I don't know if it was just me, but you kind of cut out a little bit. But I think I got just Eric. I'm wondering how you all um, feel because Eric, you mentioned like, um, you know, I think we've talked about like neurodivergent and some of those kind of movements to be like more positive. And I'm thinking about and we had a conversation um, off air a while back about Autism Speaks and that some people, um, the criticisms of Autism Speaks were that you know, like it's kind of that deficit, like it's this thing that needs to be cured. And, and so I can see both, both sides. Like, you know, you want to be inclusive and embrace maybe the neurologic differences and, you know, and instead of trying to fit them into an environment that, you know, adjusting the environment to be more inclusive and things like that. Um, But I don't know, do you all have um, thoughts on, on that type of stuff. I don't even know. I haven't <laughs> formulated my question well, but it just reminded me of that conversation about Autism Speaks. And, um, you know, I think there is a balance between, you know, we they, they, lots of these things can be strengths or just differences and need to be um, accepted. Um, but then on the other side, we've talked about, you know, people want kind of a cure, so to speak. They want their child to be the same as others. And it, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the move from in the DSM from, you know, distinct categories of disorders to distinct spectrums of a category really changed the way we look at these areas of um, disability. And so for the Autism Speaks controversy, as I understand it, are, is that some, um, some parents feel like it's, it, is, it is something unique and special and wonderful about their child um, that is just different, neurodivergent. But then some uh, parents who maybe their children um, may be at a different spot on the spectrum and maybe nonverbal or need lots more support um, in school. And so they feel as though, no, I want, I, I want researchers to help me figure out how to 
help my child be, be, do less of these uh, complicating behaviors or um, problematic um, things for their life, whether they be the way uh, they communicate with others or, you know, different um, behaviors that interfere socially or um, in school with learning. So, I mean, I can see both sides, like it could be a both and kind of situation that um, autism is a kind of neurodivergence that is, um, you know, very special and unique to the individual and has many um, strengths um, within each individual and also sometimes can have um, significant vulnerabilities, making, uh, creating significant disability in group situations such as school and learning. And, and that's important, you know, so, uh, I think that parents in general also, um, have their own perspective on their child and the label. Some parents, love the label, feel that, feel that it explains a lot for them, that um, contained within it is a lot of what they want to learn about or respond to, to help them um, help their um, children thrive. And, and so they'll be like, well, no, you don't, you don't understand. My child has ADHD and needs X, Y, Z based on the label. Right. And so I think that's important too, because if, if the label is helpful, then we have to honor that. The parents are experts on their kids. And so if they put a lot of sort of faith into the into a label because it's helpful to them, we can try to understand more about that and and validate that. Okay, so tell me about the way um, your child manifests ADHD that that you've noticed is problematic, that needs support. And then and then I as the school psychologist can figure out along with teachers and the school team, what that looks like in school. Um, does it look different? Because maybe it's not a, a, a vulnerability in school. Maybe that's a home base, you know, and just partnering with parents to understand where they're coming from. Um, and then still, I think, turning to the skills. Okay, so if the child has um, these skills that he or she is applying in school um, and it's not you know, a manifestation of ADHD or another learning uh, disability, then let's do more of that. You know, let's give them more of those skills. And, and that's, you know, that's good too. But yeah, it's about, I think, understanding where, how everyone's seeing the diagnostics, what it means to them. Yeah. And I think there's a level of identity sometimes, like you said, kind of wrapped into that. Yeah. Like I, I, this is, this is the label and like, you know, we talked about two person centered language first or not. And what, 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 you know, it needs for different people. Yeah. And I was trying to look up somewhere a while ago. I read that, um, that at MIT, they called dyslexia the MIT disorder because after the admissions process, they felt as though they had a greater proportion of students um, with dyslexia than other schools. And of course, as we know, MIT is just enormously competitive, difficult to get into. These are really bright kids, and um, but they just happen to have dyslexia. And so from that, there was a lot of, you know, positivity about dyslexia can be a gift in terms of like, engineering skills, I guess. Uh, I don't know. But I I think that like that kind of information, I don't, and I don't remember this. If anyone out there knows if that was a study or an article that MIT put out there for their PR, I don't know. But if anyone can find it and comment on it, I'd love to read it again. But I think if it helps a child or student feel good about themselves and uh, hopeful and positive, then I'm for it. You know, so, and I and I think if students at MIT do have dyslexia, that's really cool. I like that. That's kind of like our American explorers, you know, entrepreneurs. I think that is kind of positive. <laughs> well, I know we had um, talked about the values in action survey, and uh, I think 
we had shared that a while back and and suggested that we we take that uh, to learn about our own strengths. And um, and then Rachel, I think you linked it again. Um, so the survey is pretty quick. I mean, maybe ten minutes or so if you really think a lot about the questions. You know, so it goes pretty quickly. Um, but it starts to you know it gives you a little feedback in terms of um, your you know your strengths and values, and then uh, gives you sort of secondary and tertiary um, strengths and values as well. So. Um, does anyone want to go first or talk about their own experience with the survey? I think we should make Rebecca go first because she is the original one who did yes. it and recommended it. And I thought it was a cool experience, but I want to hear about Rebecca's strengths and a little yes. bit more about, you know, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I loved it. I, uh, used to go, um, Angela Duckworth at the university of Pennsylvania used to have, um, an educator summit every summer for teachers, school psychologists, school counselors um, of all kinds. And she used to, um, in that weekend workshop, bring presenters from all over and share like whatever people were researching, whatever, whatever she thought could help um, teachers and educators do their job. And that's where I learned first about the VIA survey, which was, um, developed by um, um, a bunch of researchers at Penn, including Martin Seligman and um, and his co-conspirators in a very big book called um, Character Strengths and Virtues. And in that book, uh, for that book, he and the other researchers looked at cultures across the globe and and kind of ask them, um, what are the qualities in a person that people in your culture most admire? And across the world, they found these 24 that, and if you go to the VIA website, which is viacharacter.org, you can find um, research and um Lots of articles on this on the strengths. You can take you can take the free surveys. There's paid versions of the surveys too. But um, so they found these 24 uh, character strengths and values or virtues that are common throughout the world. And I um, took the test back then. This was like so long ago, but. I was really blown away. It took me about 15 minutes, just self-survey questions or like if you were in this situation, would you be likely to do this or, you know, just different questions about kind of your opinion about what, how you think and what you might do. And, um, and then you, you hit, you know, enter and, and then it gives you a list of your 24 character strengths and virtues in order from the strongest. And so um, the top five or so they they like to call or refer to as, as those as signature strengths. And so um, I was a, more a brand new school psychologist at the time that I took this um, survey. And I found that my top strength is bravery or courage. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, that, that is not the way I was seeing myself. That's not the lens through which I was looking at myself. Um, but I thought about it. I thought about the questions that they, that were asked that were likely associated with courage and bravery. And I reframed the way I thought about myself because at the time I was doing a lot of new things, including being a school psychologist and this podcast. And I was, you know, like kind of nervous and uncertain and unsure often, but I realized that, wow, but I keep going. It doesn't stop me. So I must be brave. And it was a really uh, awesome, empowering way to think about myself because then anytime I was faced with a new challenge, I thought, well, I'm brave. Uh, yes, I'm going to try that. <laughs> you know? um, and so my top strengths were bravery, gratitude, love of learning, and perspective, um, which 
I think, you know, in retrospect, sound, sound like me. And I was, and I was so, and, my, and then my, of course, I looked at the 24th, like, which one am I really bad at? <laughs> and you're not supposed to do that. You're a deficit thinker. No, no, no. <laughs> I did the same thing. So I was like, they call them lesser strengths yeah. to frame it. But I was like, let's see my weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And mine was, um, what do they call it? The one where they were like, if there was, you know, a cookie on a plate and you were already full, would you eat it? Would you have the strength to like not eat it? And I, my answers were always no. Um, was that prudence or what was that? Or like, oh, temperance. That was my, yeah, that was my answer. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big indulger. So um, I have to work on my temperance, but I loved, I loved the questions. I love the test. I love reading, you know, about, all the resources on the website. They also have, um, you know, at the time, and I think they probably still do, they have ways um, you can learn more about each of the strengths, like including what they are and how to apply them. There's, there's lots of books that have been written by folks at Penn and in the Masters in Applied uh, Positive Psychology program that, um, that work with these, uh, with the VIA uh, Institute. So there's like a lot you can do once you take the test, if you want to. Um, and I found it really helpful. So I made my husband take it and my four children who were teenagers at the time. And we had these great family conversations about our signature strengths. And when things came up in school or with friends, we would talk about, well, um, with, how can you apply your signature strength in this moment? And, um, and, you know, when I got my kids results, when they got them back, I could really see them. And I think it, on the website, if you look there, there have been now millions of people um, who have taken the survey and they consider it like a, a valid instrument. And so it's really cool. Free, free psychological test for you and your loved ones. <laughs> what did you think taking it, Rachel? Yeah, I, th I thought it was good. I mean, it, it's interesting to be doing, you know, right anytime I'm doing rating scales for doctor's offices or, or anything, I'm like, yeah, okay, I understand. Like, and I did have the thought of, you know, is this kind of like a like a horoscope or, you know, it, it, could it be met to anybody? Um, and I don't know the psychometrics behind it, but I, I trust in what you're saying. And, you know, it's coming from a reputable place. So I'm sure that there's validity assigned. But yeah, my uh, my top strength was honesty, which uh, I, I think I would agree to that sometimes to a fault. You know, I'm kind of opinionated. I'm sure that I make people angry sometimes. I have sometimes unpopular opinions and I know they're unpopular, but I'm still going to say them because because I do. And I kind of blame that on being from New York sometimes that I just, you know, I'm going <laughs> to get my word in. But then I had bravery, uh, creativity, curiosity and perspective were my top five. Um, and then I did look um, at my, my lesser strengths and I kind of laughed a little bit. So teamwork is a lesser strength. Um, and I think that that's probably true because I do like to be kind of making the decisions sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, like if you want something done right, do it yourself type of mentality, which is not so good. Kindness was a lesser strength, which I laughed at. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that's a little bit harsh. Harsh. Um, spirituality, which I totally, I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm not, um, I don't subscribe to any religion and, and kind of skeptical by nature. So um, that made total sense. And then self-regulation um, under the temperance category um, was my absolute last one. And that makes sense too, because like your cookie example, like I'm just like, I eat anything that I want to eat and I don't, and I, I don't, plan ahead and do things that I know. I'm like, I know I should exercise. I know this will extend my life, but it's so much better to scroll on my phone. And I just, um, yeah, I know these things, but yeah, I'm eating the cookie. <laughs> How about you, Eric? What did you I'm do? I'm laughing so hard because temperance was number 24 for me. <laughs> That's all three of us. And yeah, it's that's exactly it. I'm eating the cookie too. <laughs> I, I am a marshmallow study too. We're just like, yes. no. 
<laughs> that was so funny. Um, my uh, number one was love and human under humanity. Uh, See, this is we, we balance each other out. I'm not kind, yes. but you guys have all this love and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we do, right? And and it's funny. Um, teamwork was lower for me too, and I think probably as school psychologists, we're so used to being Lone Ranger sort of, you know, employees, um, you know, we do our job, we are, you know, sometimes relegated to a broom closet or wherever we can test. And, uh, and so we, we do things, you know, independently uh, very well. So, um, so, but uh, fairness, a sense of justice was important to me uh, and curiosity and humor were my, my top uh, five. So, um, those are great. And it makes me laugh just for the next NASP conference. No one should leave us alone with the desserts. Um, <laughs> when, when we're about to present or anything like that. And that explains so much. I mean, you all know that one, I get super excited for all the freebies and the pens and I don't just take one pen. I'm taking like all of the pens. And then I'm thinking about anytime we go to any of those like luncheons and things like the award ceremony and stuff. And there's like the free wine, the free, you know, the buffet. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, like it's my favorite thing in the world. So <laughs> there you go. That's so funny. Yeah. And I also think, you know, so the way these character strengths and virtues are thought about, I think, is their values, right? They're, they're things that are not only strengths, but not in terms of sort of our standard equipment, like we, this is just the way we are, but in, in terms of what's important to us. So for the three of us, it's not important if we have a couple of extra cookies, you know, like it, it doesn't, it's just, it doesn't bother us. It's not something that we three necessarily care that much about, but it doesn't mean that if we needed to have a little bit more temperance in some area, um, and then it, and it it aligned with another value of ours. For example, you know, courage. Like maybe it is really brave to say, okay, I won't eat the last slice of pizza or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, like so. I think that that's important to consider. That even though, and that's why really we're not supposed to look at those last ones and say those those are our our deficits. But because they're not, they're just the things that in the time when we took the test were the least important to us, though they showed up the least in our responses. And it, it's probably because we're just not thinking about them right now. They're not, you know, front and center in our mind when we're looking, when we're answering questions about ourselves. So, um, and it's the same for kids when they take it. So I think that's really cool because we, we would also likely have to explain to students that it doesn't mean that you stink at whatever was your 24th. It just means that right now that's not the most important thing to you, but let's say, you know, something else is really important to you. Like, you know, honesty that, you know, none of them are bad, right? They're all amazing. They're all virtues. And, and so if that's your virtue, if that's your signature strength, virtue or, and value, how do you want to use it? How do you, you know, because you're going to probably feel really good when you use it because it's already something you care about. That's a good point. And thinking about um, where we are in the school year, right? I need the cookie. It's the end of the school year. I'm still doing evaluations. I'm still writing reports. I need those cookies. So <laughs> I value that. <laughs> I love that. Anytime, yeah, my schools have the donuts out or the teacher appreciation stuff, like, it just makes me so happy. I don't know. The, the food, I, especially free food, I don't know. There's something about it. I can't, I can't control myself. <laughs> oh, good stuff. No, I, I, I liked, uh, that was a great conversation and I liked hearing about um, your all strengths and, and, and just kind of chuckling about our, our lesser strengths and, um, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And I know that it goes down for, there's a youth version and I'm going to see about um, getting my kids to take it. I think my daughter might be too young, but I would, I, I like the idea of having that conversation kind of around the dinner table and, and reframing some, some stuff and, and building on that, Rebecca, like you said. Yeah. Okay. Any, um, I'm going to ask any last 
thoughts or questions or comments from the audience. Um, and then if you have anything, Erica, Rebecca, we have uh, the last podcast of the year coming up. Home stretch for school. I, I think I have three evaluations left. I have um, my due date for all three is the ninth. So um, I've got to get them done this week. So wish me luck with that. I wish everybody else who has evaluations and due dates uh, good luck getting through all of that and, then, and and making it through to the other side. And then I um, I travel out and I hope that people are traveling and having a fun um, you know time with with all that. I have things to look forward to. But our next podcast in two weeks, right? I'm thinking so the 18th. Um, we'll be wrapping up the the book study. So that'll be good. Any other thoughts, Eric, Rebecca? No, I just, I cannot believe we're at the end of another school year. Yeah. Time is just flying by. And yeah, like Rachel said, I hope everyone out there is getting their to-do lists done, feeling good about um, the summer and will have some restorative time for themselves and their families because that's so necessary. So I guess maybe we could, we would all say, if I could speak for all of us, eat the cookie. You deserve, <laughs> you deserve that level of self-compassion. Just have it and enjoy. <laughs> exactly. The same. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye.